So I, um, I'm in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at Paul uh, taking the gospel to Athens. And uh, what I want to do on the front end here is just get right into it and start reading. We're going to be in, in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Uh, so let me go ahead and read that so we all know um, what we're getting into today. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Oropagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of. For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring then, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Uh, so this series is all about, you know, moving through the book of Acts and, and, and taking a hard look at the earliest authentic original Christianity. And, and what we're looking at today is, is Paul bringing the gospel to what was at the time the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman Empire, uh, which was the city of Athens. And Paul's address to the philosophers in the, um, in the Oropagus is something that has uh, been the subject of a lot of debate and a lot of study and a lot of research uh, and to, to really get into it and understand all of it, you need to have a pretty robust education in Greek rhetoric and all those kinds of things. But what I want to do is just sort of zoom out uh, to, to a 30,000-foot view of, of Paul's ministry model to the city of Athens, and I want to pull out three themes that we can see in the way that Paul approached Athens that are uh, as relevant as, and, and as transforming to us today as they were to, to people 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to give those themes to you on the front end. The first is going to be the sufficiency of the gospel. The second is going to be the greatness of God, and the third is going to be the outrageousness 
of the resurrection. And so with that, I want to just get right into what we're talking about today, uh, right to our first uh, main theme, and that's number one, this efficiency of the gospel. And you see this right on the front end of this passage in verses 16 through 18, which says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? What this picture shows us first and foremost is that Paul uh, saw the gospel not just as something for his inner life, but also as something for the public square. Not just as something that could bring him a sort of private inner peace that, that you know, it, it was his personal thing, it wasn't really anybody else's business. He saw the gospel as something that was actually designed to be brought into public life because Scripture tells us here that he, he went right to the marketplace of Athens. Now, when you and I think about the marketplace, uh, the, you know, the first idea that comes to mind is shopping. But the truth is the marketplace in ancient cities... Uh, specifically in the Roman Empire, was the cultural center of the entire city. Uh, the marketplace was the, it was the, um, the center for, for, for media. I mean, in that day, obviously, there was no such thing as newspapers and things like that. There were hardly any, any books. So if you wanted to find out what was going on in the rest of the world or in the city itself, you had to go to the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace was the center for finance. It was where business people kind of got together and uh, did their deals. It was the center for arts where shows were performed. And uh, maybe most importantly to the city of Athens, it was also the place uh, where people would discuss and debate and weigh uh, different philosophies and, and beliefs and ideas. And you have to remember that Athens itself as a city was really the intellectual center. I mentioned this on the front end. It was the intellectual center and capital of the Greco-Roman world. And so what that meant is the, the ideas that, that uh, were brought there and gained traction there uh, would, would then flow out from Athens and really sort of determine uh, the course of life for how everyone in, in society uh, thought and lived. And Paul here was not intimidated by that at all. He went right to that with the gospel message. And scripture says that he reasoned in the marketplace. Um, the Greek word for that is the, the Greek word dialogomai. And you might have heard the word dialogue in there. It's really important to understand exactly what Paul did. Um, it's a word, this word dialogomai, when it says he reasoned, that's a word that refers to what's known as the Socratic method of reasoning. Uh, the Socratic method of reasoning, on, on the one hand, it was not just debating. You know, when we think about debating, especially, uh, you, know, you know, in terms of presidential debates, um, the way that that is normally structured is one person puts their ideas out there, uh, then the other person puts their ideas out there, and they kind of spend the rest of the time attacking each other. That's not what Paul did here. That's not the Socratic method of reasoning. Uh, this also does not mean preaching. In other words, Paul did not go into the marketplace of Athens, stand on a soapbox and say, I have the truth, you all are deceived, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to deliver that to you and then it's up to you what you do with it. Um, really important to understand that he didn't do that because Paul knew, frankly, uh, that that wouldn't work. What Socratic reasoning really means, uh, it refers to doing what absolutely nobody on social media does anymore, which is first and foremost listening to someone else and seeking to understand what they believe and asking questions until you could basically state their premises and their worldview better than even they could themselves. And then in understanding that, it's attempting to show that individual uh, the flaws in their own worldview or their own belief system uh, that, it, that it fails according to its own premises. 
how, how your own worldview or your own beliefs really are, are, are going to continually frustrate you and not give you what you're after, uh, really what, what it's about is, is its engagement. When we talk about engaging somebody, that's exactly what Paul did in Athens. And so Paul, what he did here is he went to the center of the city that was in and of itself the center of the Roman Empire and he gets out the gospel very simply because he believed that the gospel was sufficient to challenge the most dominant ideas of the most intellectually sophisticated uh, and influential city in the entire Roman Empire. And so the takeaway for Christians today is, you know, couldn't really be a whole lot clear. What it means for Christians is that on the one hand, we don't just preach at people. We don't just beat people over the head with Bible verses and say, you're wrong and I'm right and you better listen to me, kind of turn or burn sort of thing. But what it also means, on the other hand, is that we don't hide our faith. We don't keep that a private thing and sort of seal it off from every other area of our life. We do what Paul is, which is engage, because the gospel is sufficient. Now, I just want to pause here. One of the things that I, I, I try to do a lot when I'm putting these, these teachings together is think about where my mind would go if I was sitting listening to my own ideas. For most, you know, Paul's an apostle, you know, he's probably this, this, this brilliant, you know, comes from the school of Pharisees, he understood how people thought and lived, knew how to present the gospel in a really persuasive way. But not only that, it's just that the culture was so different back then. Right, because this was a pre-scientific age. It even says in this passage that people were, you know, all about. They were, they, they loved the idea of hearing new ideas, and and um, you know, they they were more prone to adapting those ideas. And so the thought process is a lot of times that that, that might have worked then. It doesn't really work now because things are different and people are different. Um, and if that's a mindset that you've ever had when you read the book of Acts, I just want to try to offer to you that that's really not the case. Scripture says that there's nothing new under the sun. And what that, that means is that while things might manifest itself differently, people have been people ever since Genesis chapter 3. And I want to try to show you that uh, right here. Because you notice it says in this passage that there were two specific groups of people that Paul was engaging, that Paul brought the gospel to and sort of went toe-to-toe with. It was the, the um, Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, this is a bit of an overgeneralization, but what you had in those two groups of people is, is Stoics were basically the moralists of society, uh, whereas Epicureans were basically the relativists, meaning Stoics believed in moral absolutes. They believed that there was a definitive right and wrong way to live. And so for Stoic people, they believed that the meaning of life was to be good, to try as hard as you can to keep the rules and to endure whatever suffering came your way with sort of a, well, a stoic kind of, you know, stiff upper lip, um, you know, take it off the chin sort of thing. That's basically how Stoics thought life was meant to be lived. That was their worldview. Epicureans uh, were far different. Epicureans believed that there was no afterlife, that when you died, this life was over. Uh, And if there were gods, those gods were so remote, they didn't really have anything to do with us and really shouldn't have any bearing on how we lived. And so Epicureans believed that the meaning of life was, was not to be good, it was to be happy. Their thing was uh, pursue all the pleasure that you can uh, because this life is all that you have. And, and so when you zoom out, you have Stoics who are trying as hard as they can to keep all the rules and Epicureans who are, who are trying as hard as they can to satisfy themselves. And when you really zoom out from both of those groups of people, you realize our culture even today is still filled with people exactly like that. We just don't call them by those names any longer. Right? What Stoics are in, in, in our culture, Stoics are the traditional conservative religious types um, who are you know, trying really hard to be a good person in and of themselves, whereas Epicureans are basically you know, more progressive, uh, more liberal, more um, 
irreligious types who don't necessarily hold to a traditional view of reality and are more interested in following their, their hopes and their dreams and their desires in the hope that by doing so that will lead to a fulfilling and satisfying life. And the point is, the reason that I'm walking through all this, is because Christianity can appeal to those people now just like it did 2,000 years ago. Because one of the things that both of those ways of life have in common is that they don't work. Uh, a, a stoic lifestyle in which you're, you know, you're going through life trying to keep the rules and handle suffering in and of your own power is, uh, you know, it might sound good on paper, it might seem okay in theory, but it has all kinds of problems with it. First off, for anybody that's tried to live that way for any length of time, first off, this is an incredibly exhausting way to live because what it winds up doing is putting you on trial every single day. It, it basically reduces life to a series of tests that you need to pass and you're only one failure away from yourself being a failure. It's incredibly performance-based, and any lifestyle that's very performance-based means that you don't have any real solid foundation for your identity. And so that creates a, a real nagging insecurity in you, which in turn will, will, will make you a very judgmental person because you actually need to point out the, the shortcomings in other people in order to feel good about yourself. But maybe the biggest issue with the stoic lifestyle, the, the real fatal flaw in it, is that when there is a major moral failure in your life, or when you are handed a kind of suffering, a, a, a kind of back-breaking suffering that you don't have the ability to just muscle through in and of your own power, what will inevitably happen is it will create a great deal of despair in you because you have nothing bigger than you to hold on to. Nothing bigger than you that's holding on to you that can lift you outside of that. And so a stoic lifestyle sounds great in theory uh, until you come to the end of yourself. And the, the problem with this life is that sooner or later we're all going to come to the end of ourselves. And so for those living that lifestyle, Christianity offers you a savior who has succeeded in every area that you have failed and now stands ready to offer you things like grace and mercy and forgiveness. And maybe most importantly, Jesus stands ready to offer you and I an identity that's received rather than achieved, one that's based on what he has done for us rather than what we need to do for him. Uh, secondly, and the Epicurean lifestyle in which you're going through life trying as hard as you can to satisfy yourself, that doesn't work any better than a Stoic lifestyle because anybody living that way for any way of life found then, 2,000 years ago, what they still found now, which is that really the best way to make sure that you never find satisfaction in this life is to live only for your own satisfaction. And I, I just want to ask you for a minute, can you, can, can you relate to that? I mean, can you not say amen to that? If I can just open up to you personally, there's not a single time in my life, and granted, I've only been doing this for 33 years now, but there has not been a single time in my life that I have followed my own self-centered desires to their logical conclusions, got to the end of that path and said, man, that was great, I should do that more often. That was exactly as satisfying as I promised myself it would be on the front end. I need to do, I need to put me first even more. Of course, it never works that way because according to scripture, that is a literal violation of our design. And so if, if stoicism creates a real cold lifestyle, a cold and rigid lifestyle, what, what Epicureanism does is it's, it's just an empty lifestyle. It's hollow. It's just a whitewashed tomb. It might look pretty on the outside, but it's full of death. And what Christianity offers people living this lifestyle is it offers you the peace and the rest and the joy and the comfort, the significance, the security, the satisfaction, the fulfillment in a love relationship with your creator that all of us by design are looking for but will never be able to find in this life. And, and so the, the reason I took the time to walk through this is because Paul in, in the city of Athens 
wasn't afraid of either of these groups of people, wasn't afraid of either of their worldviews. Instead, what you see here is he made a beeline for them. He took the gospel right to them because Paul had the confidence that the gospel and only the gospel has what it takes to fulfill the deepest longings of the human heart. And as the gospel was sufficient then, so it is now. So the first theme that we see here is, number one, the sufficiency of the gospel. But the second theme that's going to kind of serve as our second main heading today that we see uh, in Paul's ministry model in Athens is the greatness of God. And we see this as, as, a, as a clear theme in the, the actual speech that Paul made to the Oropagus. And the Oropagus, by the way, was the council of the most influential minds of that day. Uh, Paul, what happened here was in reasoning in the marketplace, his ideas gained a little bit of, of traction or at least interest, and he was invited uh, to share his ideas at the Oropagus, and so he begins to speak. And when you zoom out from what Paul uh, says in the Oropagus, what he offers the people there that day is a God who was greater than they had ever imagined God to be, certainly greater than any of the Greek and Roman gods that they were accustomed to. Uh, to making sacrifices to themselves. So it's found in, in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Let me read this. It says, Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, we don't exactly know uh, why this altar was built. It's possible that there was a polytheist who was just kind of nervous and just wanted to cover all of his bases, Uh, you know, the ancient equivalent of a nervous Nelly uh, who just wanted to make sure if there's a God out there whose name I don't know, don't really want to offend him, Uh, so let's go ahead and make him an altar. It's possible that that's really all that altar was, but what's important to see about this is how Paul interpreted it when he saw that altar. And this is kind of foundational to the whole argument that Paul's making in the city of Athens. When Paul saw this altar to the unknown God, what he saw is a sign or a symbol that the human heart can sense. This is true of everybody, regardless of where you and I are coming from this morning. What Paul saw when he saw this altar was a sign or a symbol that the human heart senses that there's a God out there that's, that's just bigger than all this. But, but, but we also have this intuitive sense that we can't quite connect with that God. We can't quite, in and of our own power, identify who that God is. We don't exactly know who he is. We just have this nagging sense. It's deep-seated in the human heart that we know he's there. And, and so Paul's goal here in the, in the Oropagus is to reveal who that God is. And I'm going to return to this idea in just a minute, but I want to point this out. It's really important to understand the flow of Paul's argument. What he's doing in the Oropagus, his argument is not, I'm going to prove to you that God exists. His argument is, I'm going to prove to you that you already know he does. There's a difference there, and we'll get to it at the end of this. So, so, so what he does in describing this God, uh, first and foremost, is he explains that this God is higher than any God that they had ever heard of in the Greek and Roman pantheon. You see this in verses 24 through 26. Paul said, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, And does not live in in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And he's determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Now Paul's main idea there is simple. I already stated it on the front end. That this God that he came to reveal. This God that their, their unknown altar sort of gives them away. As having this sense of this God is higher than anything else they've ever heard of. 
that first off, he created everything. Secondly, he depends on nothing. And thirdly, he is sovereignly involved, ruling over every aspect of his creation. He's not like a watchmaker that sort of wound it up and now he's just letting it tick itself away. He is intimately, sovereignly involved in it all. But then Paul adds this element in revealing who this God is in verse 27. He says he did this, God did all of this, so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. I think this is a really amazing statement. Though he is not far from each one of us. Now that's Paul saying that on the one hand, this God is higher than anything you've ever heard of. But on the other hand, he's also nearer. Meaning this God is transcendent, yet he's also imminent. And, and, and maybe at least one of the most amazing things about this God is that he desires a personal relationship with you. That's what Paul is saying. But then Paul says, and this is kind of how he concludes this part of his argument, he says that you already know there's, there's a part of you that, that has some level of awareness that this God is out there. That's why he says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Now what Paul's doing there is he's quoting two of their own poets. And he's, he's making the argument, he's saying in your own writings, some of your own poets, some of the greatest minds of your culture have sensed this God that I'm talking to you about. And this, this God that Paul is bringing up here is actually, it's an amazing argument, not only for uh, the mind, but also for the heart. So let me sort of walk through the, these two ideas. So first off, um, this is a great argument for the mind. Now, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to drive this home here, and you'll see why it's important in just a minute. Paul is not saying here, I'm going to prove to you that this God exists. He's saying, I'm going to prove to you that you already know it. Uh, he, he, that's, that's why his, his argument begins. He's explaining, you build altars sensing that this God is there, knowing that there's got to be more than this flimsy pantheon of these gods that aren't even worth serving, that are constantly feuding with each other, and you don't really love, you don't really adore. You sense that there's something higher than that. And furthermore, your own poets, the greatest minds in your day, even accidentally whisper ideas about his existence. So what, what Paul is basically saying is that you see clues in your own thinking and you see clues in your own behavior. It gives you a way that there's some awareness of this. Now, here, here's a modern example of this kind of argument. Uh, I recently heard about a woman who was a cultural anthropologist in African culture. And one of the things that really bothered her when she surveyed African culture was uh, the way that women were treated. And so she, she reached out to some um, people in authority in those cultures, and the answer she got was, hey, listen, don't you dare impose your white, Western, individualistic values on us. We do things our way, you do things your way. You don't have any right to in, in, impose or try to export with some sort of imperialism what you think is the right way to do things. And so their response obviously really bothered her, but maybe not for the reason that, that, that you think it did. So, so in that response, this woman wrote an article and, uh, and, and in this article, she admitted that she herself did not believe in God. And what that meant was that she did not believe in moral absolutes. Uh, and, and so she had to admit, ultimately, that these people and the way that they responded to her in this other culture, they were right. Uh, she had her beliefs about morality. They had their beliefs about morality. But she had no right to say that her culture's beliefs were more valid than any other culture. See, if there's a God who has declared what is right and what is wrong then our feelings about morality no longer matter. Something is right or something is wrong simply because God has said it is. But if you take God away, then you have a real problem because the only thing you're really left with is your own thoughts, ideas, and opinions about what's right and, and, and what's wrong. And so you may feel very strongly that something's wrong, 
But you don't have any right to impose those feelings on anyone other than yourself. And this woman in this article basically knew that and she admitted that. She realized that she couldn't prove as though it's something you could write on a chalkboard that there is a right and wrong way to treat people. She couldn't prove that, that universal human rights uh, is, a, is an absolute truth in the universe without violating her own worldview. And so she came to grips with that, but, but still she said that she was going to continue to fight for women's rights in Africa, and that's basically how her article ended. And so what happened in her case was she had a premise, namely that there is no God, which led her to a conclusion that she knew was not true, which is that it doesn't matter how women are treated in Africa. And she knew that, that something about that wasn't right. She knew that there was a deep inconsistency there. She sensed that there was this kind of transcendent lawgiver over humanity that said, no, there are moral absolutes. There are absolutely right and wrong ways to treat people. There are laws that should govern every person in every culture, regardless of our, of our feelings. And what Paul would say, the reason I walk through that is what Paul would say to a woman like that is, listen, your desire to work for women's rights in Africa that is your own personal altar to this unknown God. That, that, that you're, you know that he exists. You're, you're thinking as, as if he exists. Your, your own behavior, the things that you've dedicated your life to, don't even make sense unless this God exists. And he has declared over humanity what is right and what is wrong. Yet you won't admit that he exists, and so I'm going to show you that he does. And so in bringing up this big God, what Paul is basically saying is you're already living in a way that acknowledges his existence, which is an incredibly strong argument for the mind. It's a very rational argument. But, but Paul's sermon in the Oropagus doesn't only appeal to the mind, it also appeals to the heart. And what I mean is our hearts, by design, need to believe in a God as big as the one that Paul's describing here, a God that's so big that, like verse 26 says, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. What that verse is teaching is that, that where you live and when you live and every place that you have gone, all of it has been planned by a God who is sovereign over your life. That's what Paul was explaining to the Athenians that day. And there, there's something in the human heart uh, that rails against that, that hates that, at least on the front end, because we all naturally want to be sovereign over our own lives. But the truth is uh, that so often that's why we're so anxious. That's why we find so little rest in this life. Because if we really want to find rest, what we need is a God as great as the one that Paul is describing here. In, uh, in 1976, there was a missionary convention. You can actually still listen to this on YouTube. I listened to it this week. 1976, there was a missionary convention. It had thousands of college students in attendance. And uh, Elizabeth Elliott was the keynote speaker. And when she spoke, she told the story about five missionaries uh, who on one night back in the 50s, uh, they worship God together, and they sang a hymn. Uh, the words were, we rest on thee, our shield, and our defender. The next morning, they, got, they made uh, contact with an Amazonian tribe that they were intent on delivering the gospel to for the very first time. It was a totally unreached people group. And when they got there, all five of them were speared to death, killed. One of those missionaries was a man named Jim Elliott, you may have heard of, who was actually Elizabeth Elliott's husband at the time. And so what you have is, is one evening, five missionaries saying, Father, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And the next morning, all five of them were speared to death. And here's what Elizabeth Elliot said uh, in response to all this at this conference. You can hear a pin drop when she spoke. She said, they were speared in the course of their obedience. Now, what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? 
A faith that disintegrates is a faith that has not rested in God himself. You've been believing in something less than ultimate, some neat program of how things are supposed to work. You have not rested and recognized God as sovereign in the world and in your life. And she went on and said, and this is one of the most famous quotes of Elizabeth Elliot. She said, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And she quoted Evelyn Underhill, who said, If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. That's an incredibly tough pill for us to swallow. I think specifically in our culture, as pragmatic as our culture is, and as much as we love to maintain the illusion that we're in control of our own lives, but if we're willing to hand ourselves over and lay ourselves down to a sovereign God and accept that so much of life is just going to, to, to require us to live in the mystery of, of following in the footsteps of a God and serving and submitting ourselves to a God that we are never going to fully understand on this side of eternity, if we are willing to do that, if we can handle that, it will, there is nothing that will lead to greater spiritual health in our lives than that. And furthermore, it will lead to the rest that our souls are designed to need. See, if, if you have a God who is small enough to be understood, he's not big enough to be worshipped. If, if you're only ever going to serve a God who is small enough to be understood all the time, that means that God is exactly as large as you. And unless you believe that you are big enough to be worshipped, then that God is not big enough to be worshipped. If, if you have a God that small, he's not big enough to be worshipped. But he, if he is, if, if your God is as big as Paul says the one true God is, if he's big enough to be worshipped, what that also means is he's big enough to lead you through things that part of you is never going to understand on this side of eternity. He's big enough to lead you through things, to hand you things, to take things away from you that you might never get a clear why to on this side of eternity. When you have a God like that and you're willing to hand yourself over to him, it's then and only then that you and I can find rest. And so this God that Paul presents, this argument that Paul presents in the Areopagus is not only a tremendous argument for the mind, it's an outstanding argument for the heart. But the last thing that I wanted to draw out today, the final theme that we see in Athens, <clears throat> is the outrageousness of the resurrection. If you notice at the end of this passage, Paul doesn't even really get to finish what he was trying to say because he got interrupted by the people that day. Uh, and and the, the thing that he brought up, the specific thing that really ended his presentation that brought on the interruption was the resurrection. Let me read this to you in verses 30 through 33. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. And then Paul said, he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And notice verse 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. The thing I want to draw out here is that as soon as the resurrection, the curtain came down. As soon as the resurrection was mentioned, there was immediately a line in the sand. Some people mocked and sneered and ridiculed. Uh, some people were, were intrigued. They wanted to hear more and even believe. But the point is, that's where the line was drawn. Because notice, Paul calls the resurrection proof. What Paul is saying here 
is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how we know that all of this is true. The reason that that is so offensive to people, the reason that it served as the dividing line for the people of... I I think that's so interesting. You can talk about God as creator of everything, as sustainer of everything, as God who depends on nothing, as God who's sovereign over everything, but the moment that Paul said there's proof of this, there is tangible, physical, literal, historical proof of this, and that proof is a person who came back from the dead. That right there is what offended people. And the reason that that's so, offended, uh, so offensive to people is because it forces people to go all in or all out on Christianity. See, I, I think if, if you took the resurrection away, if you took the, the closing argument that Paul had here, then, then basically, and I think this is how a lot of people approach belief systems generally, you, you could almost get the idea that Christianity can be approached as a smorgasbord, where I'm going to take the things that I like from this belief system here, but kind of leave some things on the table that really aren't for me. I like Jesus' teaching on these topics, these ones not so much. And you can kind of compile an amalgam of different belief systems where really you still maintain control of your own life and you're functionally your own God. But when you say what Paul says at the end here, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that God exists, and it's the proof that the gospel is true, then that eliminates any gray area. What that means from then on out is that this is either true or it's not true, but either way, you and I are forced to decide. And what that means is either you and I are going to go all in on this thing, or as Paul himself said to the Corinthians, we should discard the whole thing because we of all people are most to be pitied if this man did not come back from the dead. But if it's true... If Jesus really did come back from the dead, then that means that absolutely every single aspect of Christianity needs to be accepted and submitted to regardless of whether we like it or not. And as difficult as that might be on the front end, what that will produce in those who submit themselves to this teaching and believe and trust in this and hand themselves with open hands over to it, what that will produce in every single person who does that is hope. Because that's exactly what it produced in Paul. Uh, This is the last thing that that I want to go over with you today. Uh, I'll I'll leave you with this. But we're told on the front end, I I think this is such an interesting picture, that that right on the front end of this story, before, before Paul even began his ministry to Athens, it says that he looked at Athens... And he could see, maybe with some kind of supernatural vision uh, or insight that Jesus himself gave Paul. It says he looked at Athens and he perceived that the city was full of idols. And those Greek words literally mean that the city was under idols. So Paul had, had no qualms about the idea. It's not as though he started ministry there, you know, really hopeful and optimistic. And then he got there and it just really beat him down, but he couldn't leave. He knew exactly what he's getting himself, getting himself into. He knew that this was a, was a culture that was going to, you know, at best mock and ridicule him and drive him out. Maybe at worst he was going to lose his life there. I mean, in the last chapter he already, you know, did an overnighter in jail for preaching the gospel. He had no reason to believe that this was going to go any better than it did before. And yet, seeing that this city was full of idols caused him, instead of running away from that, it caused him to run toward it, to go right into the center of that city. And the reason for that is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ filled him with hope. Because that day on the road to Damascus, when Paul met the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, knowing that this this God-man who stood in front of him literally walked into and outside the other other side of death, when Paul saw that, it changed him forever. And it filled him with a surefire hope that if death itself was not too much for Jesus, then there's nothing beyond his resurrecting power. That completely changed the way that Paul went through life, and it'll completely change the way that you and I do. I want to call the worship team up, and we'll close with this. If you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, if you believe, if you allow the doctrine of the resurrection to really reason with you, 
the way that Paul reasoned with the people of Athens, what that means is that you should look at cultures, you should look at cities, you should look at situations, you should look at your friends, at your marriage, at your children, and at the problems in your own heart that you are powerless to solve or remove in and of your own power. You should look at all of those things with a supernatural kind of hope. Because the resurrection means that Jesus turned death itself around. And if that was not too much for Jesus, then nothing is. Not the people in your life or the problems in your heart. And as the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes root in our lives, it'll transform us into a people of hope. And when I look around the world today, my overarching conviction is that the world could use more people like that. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father, I know I've asked this before, but it just continually convicts me when I see the way the gospel was presented in Acts. Father, would you make us a group of people who believe the resurrection more and more and more? That we would allow what Jesus Christ has done in overcoming death and what he's promised us as our victor and our champion. God, would you just allow that to completely change the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see um, the people that you placed in our life, the way that we see this culture, the way that we see this world. We, may we be a people that have all the hope that the risen Son of God would afford us. Please transform us more and more and more. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.